this time on CQ Speaks. An editor delights in sending out rejections to general horror, and we all get into our turtle shells to examine our fraying nerves. That's coming up on CQ Speaks. Listeners and welcome to this episode of CQ Speaks, a podcast of the Carolina Quarterly. My name is Sarah George Waterfield. I am the current editor in chief of the Carolina Quarterly, um, which is given out of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We are once again in the windowless dungeon of the Carolina Quarterly offices, and I am joined today by two um, longtime friends of the journal. And by friends, I mean that they are the people who have frequently made the journal go, um, Laura and Moira who are in with me today to talk about our contest that we ran this past year, Wake and Dream Again. Um, The winners of this contest were just published in our newest issue of the Carolina Quarterly 68.1, which of course you can buy on our website, thecarolinaquarterly.com. And the contest was really their brainchild, so they are here to talk about it. We talked in the last episode with the winner of that contest, Kathleen McNamara, about her story, Cryptozoology, our uh, fiction editor, Paul. Now we really want to celebrate those other authors who had their stories selected as winners. So bearing that in mind, um, Laura and Moira, if you could introduce yourself, that would be great. Hi, I'm Moira Marquis. Um, I was the fiction editor for a while and then was the editor-in-chief before Sarah. And um, I'm Laura Broom. I was the fiction editor for a little over two years um, and um, before leaving the position capable hands of Paul Baum and Matt Duncan. Um, and I am delighted to be here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no, thanks for coming in. I am super excited to talk about this contest. I sort of inherited it, um, which I was happy happy to do, um, but it was not my brainchild. So um, Moira, maybe you could talk about some of the ideas and motivations behind the contest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Daniel Wallace and I were talking about the journal. Um, and just for clarification, we've talked about him before, but Daniel Wallace is our faculty advisor. He is also a um, renowned and well-known author of such novels as Big Fish, Kings and Queens of Rome, et cetera, et cetera. He also did the cover art for our latest issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's fantastic. And so we were um, we were talking about the journal just when he was first becoming our faculty advisor. And we were talking about how the journal runs, and he expressed concern that we weren't able to pay any of the authors, which is something that is problematic um, and uh, so we were we were discussing those kinds of issues and I said well we could pay the authors if we had a contest and um, then I said but we would need someone to judge it and he said <laughs> I think you've entrapped me and I, <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, he graciously agreed to judge the contest so that we could at least um, acknowledge people monetarily um, one time, um, and hopefully some point in the future we will be able to you know, compensate people for the time and energy that goes into putting in this journal because it is uh, a lot to ask and everybody involved in it uh, does it without compensation. So, I mean, 
while that's a beautiful artistic statement about our commitment to beauty in this world, I think we also, um, you know, would would appreciate it if people got more than just uh, feeling rich out of it. Yeah, it is not a, a beautiful artistic statement that is not compensated right. by choice. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so that was how we decided to run a contest. And then uh, I we talked about um, for a theme, we really wanted to have the theme grounded solidly in Daniel's work. Um, so Daniel's work is um, it, it engages with the personal and the individual consequences that all of us encounter and inherit um, living in the kind of alienated society of the contemporary U.S. that we all live in. Um, so we wanted to uh, have a theme for the contest that focused on people, uh, people's individual and personal experiences, but related to these kinds of larger, um, larger issues in the contemporary world that impact us all um, and have consequences for our, our personal lives and for how we see ourselves and each other. Um, so we were looking for stories like Daniel's that are kind of grounded in conventional realism in the sense of we're looking at, you know, a, an individual, um, we're, we're being told the story from their perspective, but um, also with elements that kind of magical realist writers throw in there, which are, um, which make reality seem a little strange. So, you know, um, pointing out how it is pretty odd for certain things to happen and why why do they have to be that way? Um, you know, uh, so, so this is the kind of thing we were interested in, having stories that have some element that challenges the realist genre um, in a way that helps narrative engage more critically with um, contemporary American society. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think you can see that in all of these stories in the way that they sort of make the real fantastical mm -hmm. um, in a way and really, really dig into the strangeness that is in the everyday, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, so I want to talk about the individual stories, of course, and I think that as we did not do in the last podcast, I feel it incumbent upon me to put forward a spoiler alert, um, just in case. I don't know what what is actually going to be discussed, um, but last last week, or last episode included a lot of spoilers, but then of course, you know, we're in, you know, death of the author and plot doesn't matter and <laughs> all of that other grad school nonsense that <laughs> we're inculcated in. But anyway, um, things will be spoiled, but the, sto the stories are beautiful anyway, so whatever. Um, but before we get to the stories, um, what for both of you 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 both were the really primary readers uh, before the finalists went to Daniel um, what were your experiences reading for the contest were there like specific instances that you can remember of like yes this is it this is great um, and then were there like categories of things that you found yourself going oh my god <laughs> I just can't I just can't um, I'll start off by saying that I, this is Laura speaking, um, I was so grateful for the response that we had. We had over 400 entries for this one issue, um, and um, reading the variety of stories that are out there was kind of amazing. 
Um, I think that the stories that I found most compelling were the ones, um, you know, you had mentioned, Sarah, about how the works and um, selected for the contest make the real fantastical. I really love the ones that also made the fantastical real <laughs> um, and who engaged with this concept of sort of the otherworldly or the anotherworldly um, in a way that felt so grounded. And um, I think that goes back to Moira's earlier point about having this individual's perspective. Um, so those were the ones that I, I felt very drawn to. I think that in terms of the ones that, um, you know, I think that uh, like any contest, you get some entries that are kind of forced into adhering to the premise. Um, and so those were a little bit more obvious. The ones that I got excited about were the ones where like, this is a great fit, you know? And I know that in the previous podcast, um, the author of Cryptozoology, um, Kathleen McNamara, was talking about how she'd had this story kicking around, read the idea of the contest, and said, oh, this is the perfect opportunity. And I think you can feel that moment of connection when a work lines up with the theme naturally. Um, so that stood out to me. I don't know about you, Moira. That all sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> and so the title of Wake and Dream Again, um, we went through a lot of iterations of kind of what this contest would be titled. But given what we what we landed on with this Wake and Dream Again um, sort of concept, was there a type of story or a like sort of vague outline of a story that you thought we were going to get um, for this contest? And did that pan out or not? We did get a bunch of stories that were actually dreams. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and when we were when we were reading, we were kind of like, oh, you can't end with and then I woke up. <laughs> um, I think that uh, in general, what we were looking for with Wake and Dream Again were what Dana Wallace's fiction does, which is surprise the reader. Mm -hmm. um, to, to take the theme and do something with it beyond just sort of, oh, there's magic or there's dreams, but to interpret that in a way that's specific, right? That kind of grabs a particular moment or issue or character and makes that world come alive. And I know that that's super vague, and for writers out there listening, they're like, well, that's what we're trying to do. Um, but I think that um, looking for that sort of story that takes me in a direction that I, I don't know where we're going, but I'm excited to go there. Um, that's what makes reading through over 400 stories um, really exciting. Let's get into the stories. Um, and just so that we have kind of a, um, a schema for where we're going, because I don't think we've actually mentioned what the stories are. So of course, um, our first prize winner was Kathleen Mer McNamara writing Cryptozoology, who we talked to last month. Our second prize winner was Tessa Yang, who wrote Haunting Ground. Um, our third prize winner was George Hovis, who wrote The Undertaker. And then our honorable mention was Craig Sanders with the Colby Jack Accords on Love, Patience, and Practicality, which I have to admit was a bear of a title to deal with in laying out <laughs> the issue. So those are the kind of the three um, other stories that we're going to be talking about today. So how do those specific stories fit in with the sort of wake and dream again theme? Um, so I'll talk first a little bit about um, Haunting Ground, uh, the story by Tessa Yang. Um, 
So I actually think that this is a great contrast to our first prize winner of um, cryptozoology, because for that one, you get that sense of realism, and then you sort of take a turn beyond the real. Um, whereas in Haunting Grounds, we start from the very beginning in this very unreal situation. Um, the protagonist starts off the story being dead for over a week. Um, and so you're starting from this kind of bizarre point of view, but the style is written in a way that's so realistic. And the descriptions and the dialogue, I mean, it feels as though you're in this ordinary world with this one major difference. Um, so I thought that that was an interesting take, right? Because it's sort of a realistic short story in an unreal world, um, which was a departure from what I had sort of assumed I would find. Yeah, I think uh, all of the all of the stories that we chose have that element of of grounded in realityness, but we're taking it to a place where things are going to start to seem very strange now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that it would be helpful to really get into some of the language of the stories, right? And um, I think what we've kind of talked about a little bit is the how important openings are, Laura, as you were saying, even from where Haunting Ground sort of begins, right? right? Which is very different from some of the other stories. So maybe we can talk specifically about each of the three beginnings and maybe sure. have each of you read a little bit from those beginnings. Great. Yeah. Um, I'll start with uh, Tessie Yang's Haunting Grounds. Um, so this is the first uh, paragraph of the short story. Eight days dead, Nancy Hayashi still hadn't found a decent place to haunt. This was not for lack of trying. Though in life she'd been a lazy woman, prone to whole days spent on the sofa, guilting her sons into delivering quesadillas and orange soda from the taco truck down the road, the afterlife had instilled in her a vitality she'd never known during 82 years of drawing breath. Nancy felt young again. The arthritic knots in her hands and shoulders had loosened. Her legs remained blue and swollen with fluid but they didn't ache like they used to. And in her chest, a sensation like double doors bursting open, admitting air and light and music into the shuttered room she'd become during those final wretched days. Right? <laughs> I know. <Yeah. laughs> um, what I love about finding a story like this is that moment when you read that paragraph, you think, I want to know more, right? Eight days dead. That's a great start because already I'm asking questions, already there's a plot. Mm -hmm. um, in developing this sense of like a character on the cusp of this major change, right? The contrast between though in life she'd been a lazy woman, the afterlife had instilled in her vitality, um, it sets up attention. Um, and then the notion of her being a ghost who is so um, based in sensation. Right, feeling, feeling light and airy. That, that that there's almost this like hyper embodiment of a phantom, <laughs> um, and I think that reading that kind of beginning um, draws the reader in. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I felt that way 100% when I read the first line of. Um, the Undertaker, George Hovis's piece, the third prize winner. When my friend Sean Cooper's daddy died, they found his hairpiece 20 paces away from his body. I mean, that's not the kind of 
first sentence that we normally get and it immediately throws you into action Mm -hmm. into a strange action that is not something you know even the detail the hair piece is 20 paces away from his body why why are we knowing that you know I mean it's just it's it's a it's a perspective it's a strong perspective and it immediately throws you into some action that is uh, you know people are morbidly curious then <laughs> I'm morbidly curious <laughs> sure. to know more yeah about I have, what's I have, happening I have lots of questions about the hair piece right um yeah, specifically, that is an odd detail to include, yes. especially straight from the beginning, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I want to know about the hair piece. I also want to know sort of like what Eight Days Dead does sure. to a person in um, Tessa Yang's story, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are, yeah, these are very specific places to go. Yeah, I like the you mentioned specific. I mean, with this line in the undertaking, when my friend Sean Cooper's daddy died, right? Mm-hmm. We're already putting this. Whoever the point of view is from, we don't know yet, but they're already in relation mm-hmm. um, to others mm-hmm. and to tragedy. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the focus of the rest of the narrative, um, this this car accident that opens up the, the story, but it does set up relations, and it yeah. is the kind of catalyst mm-hmm. for all the subsequent events. Yeah. And in a short story, which is only 17 pages long, as this one is, um, you know, getting immediately into the action is necessary in order for there to be enough of uh, movement in the story to feel like when you get to the end, mm-hmm. I read something. Yeah, sure. Right? Instead of just having a story that's meditative, um, you know, sure. that's kind of, uh, you know, thoughtful, but but not really about any kind of character development or plot movement or anything like that. So these kinds of openings... I think really throw things in there. Similarly, um, for our honorable mention piece, Craig Sanders's The Colby Jack Accords on Love, Patience, and Practicality, um, his first sentence is, or two rather, what would you, what could, what if you could save the world by eating cheese? What a wonderful world that would be. And again, it's so incongruous, it's so kind of just what is this person talking about? It's hilarious, it's unexpected, right? Uh, it's intriguing. Um, and it also this... sets you off on like a two and a half hour period of like legitimately thinking about what type of cheese you would eat to <laughs> save the world if like, if that were placed upon you, right? Well, if that burden. It's funny that you should mention that, Sarah, because that is kind of what happens to this narrator who, uh, you know, it, I mean, that's that's the theme of the whole of the whole story. And he succinctly boils it down to one sentence at the beginning, which if you think about the kind of intellectual focus that it takes to kind of narrow a narrative down to one sentence, a rhetorical question that you ask at the beginning and then unfold gradually through the whole narrative. I mean, that's that's intriguing to read, right? It's interesting. I got so hungry reading that, though. <laughs> I don't know. I think the cheese, he describes it so gross. <laughs> it's not kind of, you know, as he says somewhere in the piece, it's not the pristine milk of a dairy cow, you know, it's kind of the gelatinous, oily processed, processed, you know, that he describes Parmesan as like some kind of plastic, you know, I mean, it's just very, it's, it's disgusting. These are visceral cheeses, really. Yeah. 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 Yes. And he, he, he kind of, he throws in a whole bunch of stuff into this uh, narrative that's, 
that's really complicated vigilantism and kind of um, you know the 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 contemporary superhero along with insanity and cycles of being and things like that that are just very um, yeah. it's very interesting it's intriguing yeah, yeah. And so it, it certainly seems like, especially even looking back to Kathleen McNamara's piece, that the, the sort of through line of these stories are hinges on these beginnings and what what they prepare a reader for, right? Mm-hmm. And so cryptozoology once again begins with um, just this one sentence: "My spine is hooked on an invisible line, and every few minutes I feel a sharp yank on the barb." Um, and that gets to like the, the same types of things that you both are talking about in these other beginnings, which is the specificity, which is the visceralness, which is the very embodiment of mm-hmm. what that means, right? Um, I can I can feel that with mm-hmm. my spine sort of tingling. <laughs> I can feel it now, actually, as I and it's um, it really gets to you, and you're like, okay, where are we going next, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. From these beginnings, what what are the various topics um, and themes that these authors address, um, and how do they kind of build on these beginnings to continue a compelling narrative that takes us as readers through the stories? Yeah, great. Um, I think that for Haunting Grounds, we start with her death, right, with um, the protagonist Nancy has died. Um, and you get a sense of her life, um, but kind of piecemeal, right? This is not going to be the sort of, I'm going to recount to you from beginning to end. It's much more of, um, I don't know, more of like a, what I think of as a classic ghost story, which is sort of removed from time. Um, so you see time come as a major theme. Um, the sense that at first we're kind of tracing through days, and then at a certain point, days and weeks and hours seem to flow at a different rate. Um, than it does for the living. Um, But I think it kind of departs in some ways from maybe what we consider classic ghost stories in the sense that um, home uh, becomes almost playful in a way, right? She's looking for a place to live. um, To live. (laughs) (laughs) She's looking for a place to be. um, And um, there's that sense of kind of longing. And then when she finds... Of location that she where she wants to stay, there's almost this kind of lightness to it, um, and uh, a sense of her sort of finding joy in the freedom that comes from belonging somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as themes go, I think the strongest um, themes in all these stories are the elements that the authors weave in with contemporary and historical issues. So like in um, the story that that Laura was just talking about, um, that woman had experienced uh, Japanese internment, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a child, and her family had been rendered homeless, which is a parallel story to the homelessness of her kind of haunting, search for the haunting grounds, you know, um, and really... um, and really makes some interesting commentary and parallels between um, kind of civil death and actual death, mm-hmm. right? If you are denied um, participation, then 
um, it can feel like you're searching for a haunting ground, probably. So um, I think vigilantism is Craig Sanders' kind of like uh, <laughs> obsession, <laughs> a writerly obsession, which I love writers that have obsessions like this, like Borges' like obsession with time. I mean, it is just fascinating to read stuff like that. So I really love his obsession with vigilantism, especially because there's such a kind of valorization of vigilantism in our contemporary culture, right? Like mm -hmm. superheroes are increasingly being represented and he, you know, he goes through the vehicle of the superhero in order to talk about this. Um, they're increasingly represented as like everyday Joes that have you know, that are deeply wronged and go on an individual killing spree in order to, like, right these wrongs. Well, that can be kind of problematic when you have mass shootings happening every day. So, you know, I think his interrogation of this is is in all the stories. We, we put another one of his stories a couple of issues ago, um, and it was similarly on a superhero, you know, a person that just decides they're a superhero, right, and their vigilantism. Um, so this, this kind of idea that that vigilantes can solve social problems because they're unencumbered by obligations, right? They they don't have family or they don't have kind of the uh, the commitments that other people have, right? So in the case of Craig's contest uh, winning story, this one, the Colby Jack Accords, um, the narrator is without any kind of obligation, but he is also without his mind. He is insane. And this enables him to act in ways that are, that most people would not act in, um, and think that he can solve social issues by kind of pushing people in ways that make them uncomfortable. He's essentially an agitator in the story, um, and he's obsessed with the with the cycle of debt of the working poor, and kind of like does this massive cheese eating spree. <laughs> in an attempt to, to um, uh, intervene in, in, some, in this cycle in some way, right? Um, so, I mean, right there, you've touched on so many themes that are kind of the daily experience that we live with. And while it's fine to have narratives that are escapist or, you know, fantastical, outrightly fantastical, I really, I really appreciate it when um, fiction can kind of tackle some of the things that are are the most pressing issues in all of our daily lives and, and speak in a way that's that's meaningful for people. Um, and so, okay, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Um, and I want to talk about characters <laughs> in these stories. These are, in a lot of ways, just very character-driven driven stories. Um, but first, do you each have a favorite character from one of these stories? Like, oh, it's like who asking, are you spending time with? <laughs> so hard to choose. <laughs> um, it's it's funny because uh, I often in classes students will say things like, "Oh, I liked this character. Or, I didn't like this one. Or I related to this one. Or this one made me so mad." And it's always funny when I hear that because it reminds me of how different that is from the sort of like intellectual dissection we do um, in academia mm -hmm. where I'm like oh it, you have feelings <laughs> <laughs> because so often I, I think that I approach character as you know this aesthetic form formation um, that we're sort of um, 
engaging with on an intellectual plane. Um, and so then to sort of hear other readers talk about liking or not liking characters um, is always interesting for me to sort of remember how that kind of audience reader response functions. Um, so I would say that for me personally, I tend not to, I don't know, I, I have, I enjoy stories with terrible people and I enjoy stories with delightful people um, kind of equally. Um, <laughs> um, as long as they're well written. <laughs> I don't know how you feel, Moira. Um, I love Flannery O'Connor. Right. <laughs> and she always writes from the perspective of the least likable character. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I say that my favorite, um, my favorite character out of all these stories is, um, the, the narrator of The Undertaker, uh, George Hovis's story, who, um, he, it's very difficult to get character development in a short story, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have such a snapshot of a life, right? Um, but I think because as I was talking about the beginning of this story, we're just thrown immediately into a kind of chaotic series of events. It enables him to narrate the life of this kind of teenage, maybe later teenage year um, figure in this story in a way that really that really is compelling for me. I mean, he's so um, conflicted, but he he can't. Um, well, anyway, let me let me give some little sketch of who this kid is. So he he's a a kid who has a neighborhood friend, and the neighborhood friend is from a vastly different social class than he is. And the neighborhood friend is the kid whose father dies in the car crash, who was the undertaker. Um, so their friendship is strained by this event and the events that follow, and that results in the main character, the narrator, realizing and recognizing some aspects of their friendship and his life that he didn't really consciously realize before. And the ending is him coming fully into this realization, which is a heartbreaking scene um, but also incredibly empowering um, and strangely hopeful, I think, because at least he no longer lives in this kind of denial that we see him in the beginning of the story. Um, so I'll just read like the last sentence of it. It seared my lungs and pumped through my veins, blood bright red with life, spreading to every inch of my flesh, all the fear, all the rage, all the hunger. It was my lot to know. And uh, you know, that's a pretty big transformation from a kid that is um, narrated in the beginning as kind of playing Bruce Lee mm -hmm. in a garage with a kind of neighborhood friend, right? He's He has come into his own, and it is a horrible coming into your own, but that's life sometimes, yeah. so... Yeah. That's waking up. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and and hopefully being able to parse together something of some kind of a dream. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And not just being relegated to I'm woke, sweet. <laughs> um, so what about character development in other stories? How does that work? I mean, um, you know, Moira, you mentioned that in, in the short span of the short story, and many several of these stories are really very short, even shorter than many sort of short fiction that we publish. Mm -hmm. um, so how how have these authors achieved character development? Um, how is that how is that actually happening here? 
I think that all four of the stories in this issue have great moments of dialogue. Um, those instances where you see characters interacting with each other, I mean, that's the classic kind of show-don't-tell moment, um, where we can see the personality coming through through these direct interactions between characters. And dialogue is tough to write. I think that that's one of the things that, when it works, I'm so grateful. <laughs> um, because you get to have the sort of uh, observing a scene feeling, almost like a, a dramatic play moment. Um, and, um, you know, from the moments in uh, the story that um, Moira was just discussing, Undertaker, um, where you see the sort of like colloquialisms used in language that both set up the character's sort of like age and background, as well as, you know, place him within a particular um, uh, sort of access to language, mm -hmm. right? Like, like what is he capable of articulating mm -hmm. or understanding? Mm -hmm. um, so I think dialogue can perform that. Um, I also think that, you know, in moments like in um, The Haunting Ground where you see two ghosts interacting, um, that there's kind of a, uh, th they get the chance to explain themselves to each other mm -hmm. um, and have moments of connection or rejection. Um, so I would say that in terms of one thing I notice across all the stories is uh, that strong use of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it seems like that for each of the stories that how that dialogue works is highly dependent on the very disparate um, sort of structures that these authors have chosen mm -hmm. to, right? Um, because having this sort of like ghosts in dialogue with each <laughs> other is just not something that's going to fly in, well, really most stories, yep. right? But it works here mm -hmm. um, as a kind of explanatory mechanism sure. in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, and so what else, uh, strong character development in these stories, I mean, they're out, they are stories with like people you you feel next to, that you feel like you are in conversation with in some way when you're reading them. What other types of things um, have made these successful stories? Sure. Um, I think that uh, the voice for each of these stories is original and consistent. Um, you know, from the first paragraph that you look at till the end, there might be growth and development and change, but there's that consistent through line of, I know who's talking right now. Um, I can identify, oh, you know, this is a Sanders story versus a Yang story or a McNamara story or what have you. Um, so I think a strong sense of narrative voice um, that rings true throughout. I think the pacing's good. I th and that there, is, that there are solid beats, again, to kind of use the drama term, <laughs> um, where the character wants something, and then another scene, they want another thing, and like you have that kind of forward momentum of the plot. And Moira had mentioned, um, you know, not just having some kind of meditation on a theme, or just like a character thinking about being in the world, but something happens, right? Um, even if that something happening is just a sort of reckoning with one's identity or relationship. Um, that there's some sort of progression from beginning to end. So there's consistency of voice, um, but development of character. Um, and I would say finally, um, in terms of what contributes to the success of the stories, um, is the, the strong sentence to sentence writing. You can have the best idea in the world, if you don't tell it to me in an effective and eloquent <laughs> way, I'm not gonna wanna keep reading, right? Um, and um, I think that having that sense of just on a sentence level you have a variety of um, 
word choices and sentence structures and styles and that draws the reader along. And I think that those kinds of technical elements often don't get talked about because mm -hmm. they're, um, you know, less flashy um, than dramatic plot points. But if you don't have that, if I'm reading through the first page and I'm noting lots of errors, <laughs> um, you know, mm -hmm. that detracts from the experience. So I think yeah. that, that kind of polish um, really holds it together. I agree. I mean that the beginning of the first sentence of the haunting grounds, eight days dead, mm -hmm. instead of I had been dead for eight days. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It makes a big difference in terms of how you begin to read. Mm -hmm. Those yeah. little word choices matter a great deal. Yeah. And so, kind of moving away from these stories in particular, you all were fiction editors for a long time, read thousands of stories. Um, oh, let's not think about how many. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I have now been gracefully left those positions and don't have to read thousands of stories anymore. But so what, in your experience, what makes a story that people want to read? Good question. I would say so much of what gets submitted are personal narratives. Um, stories about love, loss, other personal things, and while that's a fine basis for a narrative, and we talked in the beginning of the podcast about how um, the realist genre does demand that kind of individual focus, um, I wonder why there aren't more narratives that try to address larger issues from within the kind of uh, perspective of the realist genre of the individual because these background social issues impact our daily lives all the time. So if they're eluded from fiction, um, then what is fiction doing? It's far more fantasy, in my opinion, even if you have a narrowly realist kind of narrative, if your narrative doesn't admit that you might feel a pang of guilt as you sit idling in your car in traffic, then it doesn't, it's not meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just read a narrative about somebody eating pizza on their couch, mm -hmm. right? Um, There's so many things that Americans encounter on a daily basis that, you know, from, from pervasive debt to gun violence to environmental collapse, and if fiction can't talk about things like that, then for me, it's like failing to address reality. The genre of realism, therefore, is a genre of irrealism because it's not it's not concerned with um, with the realities of life. And that, for me, doesn't make it. I'm not I'm not as concerned with whether something seems believable. I don't care whether it seems believable, <laughs> you know. And I wonder how many authors sit there and say to themselves as they're writing, "I would really love to write this." but I think that somebody's gonna tell me this is science fiction or this is magical realism or this is a myth or this is whatever. And that is something that I personally don't care about at all. I don't care if it <laughs> seems completely unrealistic. What I care about is, are you trying? I don't, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we're not, I don't think individually gonna come up with solutions by ourselves, but if we can't start floating ideas with each other and short stories, are a great place to do that because they're quick and they're accessible to everybody. People can read them in a heartbeat, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a great place for us to talk about um, not only how these kinds of things impact our personal and individual lives because they do, mm -hmm. right? They impact our relationships. It doesn't mean that you can't write a love story if you're just thinking about these issues, but 
how does that kind of violence uh, in our lives just impact how we see our loved ones or ourselves or you know um, anything about the world that's that's what I would really love to see more of and I know that it's harder yeah I mean it's a dangerous that's a sort of dangerous line to walk right because they can easily get into just polemics right where you are now just in a sort of like social commentary that doesn't have a plot right that doesn't have the the entertainment value that makes the stories go as well right or the deep personal resonance potentially um so that's hard yeah yeah, that is hard i I think that um i really appreciate what maria was saying in terms of starting with some some kind of like Mm -hmm. personal experience love loss etc and then adding another element right like make it weird (laughs) or or make it interesting or throw in something that i haven't read before Mm -hmm. so you can write about the most kind of like banal relationship issue and have another element there that changes it, that makes it kind of unique and original. Um, and in terms of, you know, reading through all these stories, um, I I think that we're very fortunate because we find so many more great stories than we have the room and the right. finances to publish. Yeah. Um, and that I cannot tell you how many stories we have read where I'm like, oh, I love this and we just can't do it right yeah. now you know, timing yeah. or um, we just happen to get a bunch of really great ones in that particular batch or mm-hmm. what have you. And so I do think that us um, declining to print something is not an indication that the story or that the writer sh- doesn't have a home in the world somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, a lot of it does come down to logistics. And I'll add on to that a little bit too, in the sense that, so when, as we're reading these stories, um, and I'm not sure how familiar listeners are with this process, but um, it's not just one person's say, right? So I can read a story and absolutely love it. Another reader on the staff reads it and says, no, this doesn't work for me, and then it doesn't go forward, right? So the stories that we have where Moira really likes it and I really like it and another reader really likes it, those are the stories that get us excited because we're very different audiences mm-hmm. and we're looking for different elements in the story. And so if you can find a work that we all find to be strong, I think that that's really compelling. Um, And so I would recommend that for writers who want to kind of improve their chances for publication is to get a ton of readers, Mm -hmm. as many diverse readers, you know, from people who, you know, like Moira are looking for something that really speaks to these kind of like larger issues at play in culture today, um, to somebody who's super into, oh, I only love romance and that's what I'm looking for, right? <laughs> Just have as many readers as possible, um, check out the work and give feedback and maybe you take it, maybe you don't, but you at least know kind of who your target audience is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, this conversation is making me think about Daniel's introduction to the stories where he's talking about you know, the challenges of publication, and his footnote number three, he says that one time he sent the same story back to the same magazine that had rejected it only six weeks before, and this time the story was accepted and even won a prize. (laughs) I can absolutely see that happening in this office, Yeah. depending on who happens to be looking at something. Who happens to be the first reader for something. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, so I think that, uh, you know, it's it's a gamble sending something to a publisher and if you don't get accepted um then you should try a different one Mm -hmm. or maybe as it was in this case the exact same one (laughs) um but people want different things i think that the cq has for many many moons now avoided historical fiction Mm -hmm. it's just been an editorial 
kind of preference. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't journals that aren't going to publish that, and it also doesn't mean that there aren't excellent works that are historical fiction, mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh, yeah, Absalom, Absalom. Yeah. We can't <laughs> knock it. We, we can't knock it. It's just, right? So I think, uh, you know, it, it's, it's about perseverance and about not, you have to be very uh, individually strong yeah. emotionally yeah. and intellectually and have faith in yourself and don't think that a rejection means you have to scrap everything or you are not worthy or whatever. I mean, we all, we all try to publish and we all get rejected. Yeah. And it, it's a part of the process that is an unfortunate, uh, unfortunate, uh, you know, consequence of what Laura was talking about. We have a limited space. We have a limited publication output because it costs freaking money and because that's just, it's time, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's not a personal sort of reflection of any story's value. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of, you know, if I, I wish that I had had the time to reach out to every writer who sent stuff to us and give that feedback because mm -hmm. we do, we read all the stories. And uh, taking that time to sort of be like, oh, you know, this was really great, but it's not what we're looking for right now. Like, please do consider us in the future. Mm -hmm. Right? That kind of sense of like, don't give up, keep putting yourself out there. The reason it didn't work out could be a lot of different things. Um, and I feel like there's this this sort of like vision in people's heads that like when editors send out rejection letters that they are like gleefully stuffing envelopes and like no, sending them out no. and like it is that is that was always the worst part of everything I hated sending rejections um I you say that. <laughs> what no It's, it's depleting your workload. Oh. You, you have to feel you have to feel a relief. It's like you have like all these manuscripts on your back and you're trudging up the hill if you can dump a couple. Then. And that's why people that's why people should submit more than one time into more than one place. Leave it in. Leave it in. We're leaving it in. No. I, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> So, uh, well, on that note, then, is there is there anything, when you both personally were reading, was there anything that was just an immediate deal breaker in a story? First lines. Okay. If they were just not good or profanity I mean, or, like, what, uh, yeah, right, like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> First lines, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I immediately get, oh, God. <laughs> So a, some first lines. a deal breaker for me is what I call Blue Ranger Syndrome. If you're familiar with the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Ah, yes. The Blue Ranger, this is back in the 90s, I don't know what's going on now. Um, he was the blue one or the green one? I think it was blue one. Um, he was supposed to be the smart one. And to show that, he would always say affirmative instead of yes. Mm. Because mm -hmm. that showed how smart mm -hmm. he was. He could mm -hmm. say affirmative. Um, when I'm reading a story that I think is saying affirmative instead of yes, mm -hmm. I get frustrated. Because yeah. I think that it's this sort of heightening the language to sort of literary ease that um, is not the language I want to speak. I want clear, clean prose. And you can use complicated sentence structures, you can use vivid descriptions and imagery that can totally be there, but it needs to be natural to the story and natural to the narrative voice. Um, and I think kind of the hyperinflation of language to sound overly flowery. Um, and you know, if you're like Nabokov writing Pale Fire and you want to do that for a character voice, like I can get on board with that. <laughs> But I think that it has to be really expertly done. Otherwise, 
to me, so essentially a deal breaker for me is a voice that sounds like it's forced mm-hmm. um, or kind of um, overly produced um, versus the kind of uh, quality of a character's tone where I want to keep hearing what they have to say. I want to hear yes. <laughs> Not affirmative. <laughs> Excellent. Um, great. All right. Any other tips, suggestions, ideas, things we haven't talked about? I don't think so. All right. Thank you so much yeah. for having us on. Yeah. Thank you all for, Thanks for doing talking this with me today. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Paul Blom, and I'm one of the fiction editors here at the CQ. What I have for you today is a piece of short fiction titled As the Turtles Do by Ken Derry, the full text of which is also currently posted to our website as an online feature. This piece is a bit longer than what is conventionally regarded as flash fiction, but I'm going to go ahead and call it that for simplicity's sake. There's a lot I appreciate about this piece, what I tend to appreciate about any effective piece of flash fiction. Because of its brevity, like poetry, There's this economy of language in which every word has to carry so much weight, creating a kind of density to the text. In relation to that, there's a really fine balance between what's said and what's not said, what's left for the reader to infer, imagine, or emote. We get just enough to paint a vivid picture, but Derry holds back enough to avoid letting this piece descend into cliché or sensationalism. Finally, the subject matter, unfortunately, is quite timely and all too relevant, but I'll let that speak for itself. In fact, that's more than enough for me. Here is Ken Derry reading his piece of flash fiction, As the Turtles Do. Hello, my name is Ken Derry, and this is my story, As the Turtles Do. When Miss Martin first heard the discharge of shattered glass, she did not pause to consider if this were a drill. Training overcame doubt. She had a precise velocity in the way she lowered the eraser and ran to the door, quick and determined, not wild or out of step in a way that might alarm the children. In this moment, Miss Martin was a fairy dancer, just a breath ago singing with them the alphabet song, pointing to the letters with the tip of the eraser, now sweeping across the floor with fingers of air that reached behind her and feathered their angel hair. As she flew, she said in a firm, adult voice, Everyone, this is not practice. Get into your turtle shells. Do as we rehearsed. Now she was at the door. She thumbed the lock. Some of the children looked at her in frozen time, as if their staring could stop the world from spinning. They looked at her for more direction, another command from Miss Martin, or the way she could point with such authority when she instructed someone to take their seat. But that confirmation did not come from Miss Martin. It happened in another cluster of pops. Miss Martin swung down the aisles and patted the children on their backs. Move, she said, now. There were, of course, a few children who did as they were told, and they quickly scooted back their seats, careful not to let the chair legs drag across the floor in that sliding trombone way that Miss Martin said was the cause of her thinning nerves and graying hair. She was only 28. 
These precious few children tapped their somnambulant neighbors and invited them into the storybook narrative that had been constructed for scenarios such as these. Get to your turtle shells, they whispered loudly. We are safe in our turtle shells. What's happening? asked Cynthia, still seated at her desk, a long pencil in her hand. Her white shoes could not touch the ground. She had yellow hair that was tied in pink ribbons, and she wore a pink spring dress that her grandmother had made. Benjamin came to her. He wore a long sleeve polo shirt tucked into blue jeans with an elastic waist. The polo had blue and orange stripes going across his chest because those were the colors of his father's favorite football team. Benjamin helped pull her chair back from the desk. He took her hand and said, It's the turtle game, remember? We have to go to our shells. Quick, or Miss Martin will tell your parents. Okay, she said. Come on, kids, Miss Martin said. You have to move quicker. She was aware of her voice and was trying with all her powers of restraint not to let her fears inflect her tone. She remained at the door and looked down the hall through the narrow pane of glass. There was nothing to see. She heard more popping and breaking, but it did not sound as though anything were moving closer. She stood there looking, her heart beating as though it were outside of her chest, exposed and vulnerable. She chewed her bottom lip, took short breaths until she periodically remembered to fill her lungs and tried to slow the thoughts in her head. Should I call someone? Should I call the front office? No. What could they tell me? I know the drill. The hallway was dark, lit only by the shocks of white emergency lights. She reached back against the wall for the bank of switches and darkened her classroom. That was a signal for the kids to freeze, and immediately the kids were silent and motionless and looking at her for their next direction. Keep going, she shooed them. Keep going. Move as fast as you can, but do not say a word. Quiet racer turtles, okay? Yes, Miss Martin, they sang to her in their most muted voices. Across the room, she saw Jimmy, a brown-haired boy who wanted to be an astronaut and loved to draw pictures of his father's motorcycle and mother's flowers. He was under his desk, peeking out at her through the bushy festoon of his bangs. She ran to him, pulling him out and forklifting him up into her chest. He began to cry. Shh, she said. Be my little spaceman, okay? You can do this. Cry softly. It's okay to be scared, but you must be quiet. Please, Jimmy. Okay, he said. She opened the closet door and stood him with the other children already there. They looked at her for guidance. "'Shh,' she said. She had a floor plan mapped out in her head where she wanted the kids to go. No comedians in the bathroom. Tile amplified laughter, and the temptation to flush the toilet might be too great. Don't group criers together. Four could fit into her cloak closet. Another ten in the supply closets. In the tall cubbies, teams of two. The floor was clear, the room quiet. "'Do as the turtles do,' she whispered." and stay silent in your shells. She backed against the wall in the nook next to the door, into the classroom umbra, and glanced out the pane of glass. She slid down to her ankles, clutched her knees, and watched the mobiles of stars and planets and birds dance darkly, swaying from their strings, tied to the ceiling hooks.
That about does it for this episode of CQ Speaks. If you like what we do here and would like to know more, you can find us at thecarolinaquarterly.com where you can purchase print or digital versions of the journal. Those can be single issues or subscriptions. There's also exclusive online content there. And if this episode has inspired you to create short fiction, nonfiction, poetry, or art, fantastical or otherwise, you can find a link to our submittable page on the website. Be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you're hearing it, and follow us on Twitter at NC underscore quarterly and Facebook at facebook.com slash Carolina Quarterly. If you're in the mood to help us keep putting out those issues, you can find a donate button on our website or reach us via PayPal at carolina.quarterly0168 at gmail.com. We'll shout you out on our next episode. And speaking of next episodes, join us next month for an interview with Ginny Co, a contributor to issue 67.2, and an editor conversation about print versus digital publishing. In the meantime, read well, write well, and thank you for listening to CQ Speaks. <laughs>